0: If you are enjoying this podcast and want to be sure that you never miss an episode, I encourage you to follow us using your favorite podcast software. Our listener support campaign continues. You can become one of our ongoing Patreon supporters for as little as $2 per month. Just go over to patreon.greatdetectives.net. Also, I encourage you to check out our other podcast, including The Amazing World of Radio at amazing.greatdetectives.net as we continue our look of radio adaptations of movies based on radio programs. And we have a special guest by Ron Echelbarger of the classic comedy of old-time radio it will be our guest. And you can listen over at amazing.greatdetectives.net Well, now it is It's time for the start of another Johnny Dollar serial. The original air dates, October 31st and November the 1st of 1955. And this is The Valentine Matter, parts one and two.
1: From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. Roy Vickers,
2: New Britain Mutual, Johnny. Hi, Roy.
1: How'd you like to try some Creole cooking?
3: Okay, what's up?
2: One of the bellhops at the St. Agnes Hotel in New Orleans had quite a time last night. He opened the safe and walked out with $7,500 in cash and a diamond necklace worth a cool 25000
3: So help me, Roy. I didn't know bellhops had so much fun.
2: That isn't all. He also stole a station wagon belonging to the hotel manager, not to mention the manager's wife. What do
3: you want back?
2: Mainly that necklace. It's the property of one of our clients. She was stopping at the St. Agnes and had it stowed in the hotel safe.
3: Any line on the bellhop?
2: Not a trace so far. The wife? Don't be funny. Can you hop a plane down there and see what's happened for
3: us? Sure, Roy.
4: Tonight and every weekday night, Bob Bailey and the transcribed adventures of the man with the action packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance
3: insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Expense account submitted by special investigator Johnny Dollar to the New Britain Mutual Insurance Company, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the Valentine matter. Expense account item one: one hundred and seventy-five dollars no cents. Airfare and the incidental costs it takes to get from Hartford to New Orleans. Once there, I was more than surprised to discover the police had wound up the whole case. The prodigal bellhop, along with the 7500 in cash, the diamond necklace, the station wagon, even the manager's wife had all been recovered. Everything and everyone tearful, but intact. I reported this development to all parties concerned, phoned the airport for a reservation back to Hartford, which they said would be the following afternoon, and then looked around for something to do. I found a spot on Burgundy Street that seemed to be less crowded than the others and settled down for the evening. That's where it happened. He was sitting alone, tall, gray haired, rugged. A face full of some fifty odd years, I guessed, and full of some other things no one could guess. It was three drinks at the bar before I made out who he was, who he had been. A man who was once big, in a way that only prohibition made them big. This seat taken? No. Mind if I sit down, Mr. Valentine?
4: Well, you can't be that old. How old? Old enough to recognize me. Recognize you from your picture.
3: Long time ago.
4: Time. I guess I could tell you more about that than anybody. You a cop? No, I'm an insurance investigator. You were a cop once? Once. Can I buy you a drink, Mr. Valentine? Dan's enough. Sure. You're doing better than the boys in the force. I've been living in New Orleans for three months now. Nobody's calling me. Any reason why they should? No. No, there isn't. But then no one's ever figured out a way to stop a policeman from making a visit when he wants to. (laughs) That's true. And a funny thing. There's a lot of policemen I've liked in my day. Visiting policemen. That is, on certain days. You're too young to remember much about it, Dollar, but a long time ago, a bunch of old women made a law called the, uh, Volstead Act. Sure. Prohibition. Everybody heard about it. Including the old women who passed the law. You see, this law was supposed to be for the other guy, not for them. Anyhow, a lot of people started bottling up violations of this Ballstead Act. You tired? No, not a bit, Dan. Well, I got me a lot of money and a lot of trouble. Thirteen years for income tax evasion, finally. Ended just three months ago, and I came here to live happily ever after. Funny. no.
3: New Orleans is a nice, quiet place to live. Better still, no one's bothering you.
4: That's the way I want to keep it. And they can pass a thousand stupid laws, and I'm not going to fall for any of them. Everything the book says, everything in order. How does that sound? Pretty good. Do you believe it? Yes, I do. Then I've got my point over. I'm flattered that you recognize me, Dollar. I paid back ten days for everyone I took. All I ask is that you don't ask the police to bother me. Okay.
3: As far as I'm concerned, Dan, you didn't even have the dinner I'm about to buy for you.
4: Dollar, it's nice to come out of prison and be recognized by a nice guy. Where we go, Jimmy Moran's.
3: That's where we went, and it was a swell dinner. Only Dan Valentine didn't eat much of it. He tried to smile and crack wise, but there was a sadness about him that stood in the way. I wanted to ask him more questions about those days back when, but I didn't. We dropped into a couple of other places. The Absinthe House, Joe Glorioso's. We listened to some jazz and drank Sazerac's and walked along Canal Street. Finally, we shook hands and said goodnight. Expense account item two, $26.26. Hotel, board, and miscellaneous. The next morning, I packed my bags, checked out of my hotel, and was about to take a limousine out to Mobile Airport.
4: Oh, uh, Mr. Donner? Yeah. A message for you. Oh,
3: thanks. It was from a police officer on the New Orleans force, an Inspector DeBaca. Could I drop by before I left town? I went right over and met DeBaca, a tall, lean, gray haired man with 30 years' service who kind of puzzled me at first.
2: Thanks for coming by, Donner. Sure. Sit down.
3: What's up? The bellhop, take back his confession on that necklace theft?
2: No, no. This is something else, darling. The Dan Valentine. Oh. You met him about 6.30 last night. You had two drinks with him, and you went over to Moran's and had dinner. You went to two other places. You left him at 11.30.
3: Yeah. I also brushed my teeth when I got back to the hotel, but I bet you can't tell me what
2: color my pajamas are. Now, take are. it easy. Just take it easy. Maybe I'm saying this bad. He doesn't know it, but we've been keeping an eye on Danny ever since he showed up in New Orleans. Just so happened you were with him last night, and you did business with us here yesterday afternoon. So? We want to know if you had any business with Dan Valentine. Don't
3: be funny, Inspector.
2: Okay, okay. Now, don't get huffy. Let me put it this way. Dan came to New Orleans three months ago, bought a house out in Jefferson Parish. He hired a housekeeper, bought himself a little car, took up fishing every afternoon or just walking.
3: Nothing wrong with that?
2: No, of course there isn't. We liked it fine. Fine. The boys in the car drive by now and then to look at him. Just look. No questions, no knocking on the door. When we see Danny in town, we turn the other way. Just look, you see? Sure. Now, he doesn't have any visitors. No old pals from Chicago or New York or Detroit come to see him. He lives alone.
3: And he likes it. That's what he told me.
2: You're his first visitor. Now, I just wondered.
3: You wondered wrong,
2: DeBaca. Okay, okay. I had to ask about it. You know how it is. Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. Yeah? Okay. Right on cue. Your pal just stopped a couple of bullets. Huh? Danny Valentine. Come on.
3: According to the uniformed officer who had put in the call, a newspaper boy had found Valentine lying on the sidewalk and roused the neighborhood. One of the residents had carried him inside. The ambulance crew stood by the bed as we came in. Valentine was lying on his back, the white chenille spread under him, changing to a deep red. Two bullets had ripped ragged holes in one shoulder, through flesh and bone, but he was just as
4: self-contained as ever.
2: I got the idea you were going to stay out of trouble, Dan.
4: I didn't know I was in any trouble. Hiya, you, Dollar? Okay. You went to the police after all? No,
2: the inspector called me in. And... About you, Dan. But let's forget that for now. How'd this happen?
4: This? Cleaning my gun.
2: You're a loser, Dan. You're not supposed to have a gun.
4: Oh, you know me and the law. We sometimes didn't hit it off.
2: but where is the gun? What gun? The gun you were cleaning when you were walking down the street and shot yourself.
4: I swallowed it.
2: Now, look. Somebody's taken a couple of shots at you, Dan. Nobody can tell us anything about it but you so far. We don't want you murdered. Well? Okay, boys. Get the ambulance
4: back. Though. Wait a minute, wait a minute.
2: You're hurt. You're going to the police hospital.
4: no. No. I've served my time, and I'm clean. Being shot at even in this state doesn't make you a criminal. Dollar. Yeah, Dan. Do me a favor. Would you phone a private hospital and have me taken there?
2: Go ahead, Johnny. Take it easy, Dan.
3: I did as he asked. A crew from one of the large private hospitals was out there in a matter of minutes. And an hour and a half later, Dan Valentine was operated on... and the bullet successfully removed from his shoulder... I waited around until he was taken to a private room... and Inspector DeBaca waited with me.
2: Dollar? Yeah? Why don't you go back to Hartford? This isn't any of your business.
3: I know. My plane takes off at four. I'll be on it.
2: Why are you waiting around here?
3: Oh, to see how he is, I guess.
2: Your pal of yours? I just
3: met him last night. You know that.
2: But you're waiting around. Yeah. You want me to tell you why you're waiting around? You want to make sure he's okay... You met him last night, and outside of what you ever read or heard about him, you don't know him from a load of coal. But you want to make sure he's going to be all right. Well, so do I. Because in that room and on that bed lies quite a man. Well,
3: that about summed it up. No matter what he had been or what he had done, Dan Valentine was quite a man. It was the same thing that had caused me to go over to him the night before and start a conversation. The same thing that caused me to believe his plans for living a quiet life in New Orleans. He came out of the anesthetic a half hour later and he sent for me. Hi. Hi. They say it's going
4: to be okay. Oh, sure, sure. This is nothing. I just wanted to thank you for giving me a hand. DeBaca could probably help you more. All you have to do is tell him who
3: shot you and Why? I shot myself, and just for something to do. Look, Dan, I have a fair idea of how tough things were for you and how tough they can be now. But Inspector DeBaca understands it, too. He'll do everything he can to
4: help you. But you have to help him, Dan. DeBaca's a good boy. You're right. You'll tell him who shot you? If there was any way he could help me, I'd let him know first. I'll handle this myself. Guess you'll want to be getting your airplane. (sighs) Yeah. Good luck, kiddo. Same to you.
3: I went back to my hotel, picked up my bags, and took a cab to Mobile Airport. My plane had developed engine trouble, and there was going to be a five-hour delay. I killed time at the bar and in the restaurant and just standing around looking at the field at night. By that time, the newspapers carried the story of the attempt on Dan Valentine's life. It was as skimpy as the story Dan had told himself, and it troubled me.
4: Mr. Dollar. Yeah? Long distance call for you from Hartford. Uh, You can take it right in there. Oh, thanks. Thanks.
3: Johnny Dollar.
2: Roy Vickers, Johnny, at New Britain Mutual.
3: Glad I caught you. Just waiting for my plane back to Hartford now.
2: The story about Dan Valentine's and all the papers up here. Have you read
3: it? Yeah, I was in on it in a way. Somebody shot at him today. He won't tell who. Says he'll handle it himself.
2: Can you find out, Johnny?
3: I don't know. Why?
2: We carry a $50,000 policy on him. If somebody's trying to kill him. We'd like to know all about it.
3: You mean I can stay here and work on this? Yes. Okay, Roy. <laughs> Johnny Dollar. This is Charlie DeBaca down at headquarters. You left a call for me? That's right, Inspector.
2: thought you went back to Hartford. What
3: now? The company I represent happens to hold an insurance policy on Dan Valentine. They asked me to stay here in New Orleans and look into this attempt on his life. How'd they hear about it so fast? Well, it was in all the papers and on the wire services. Valentine's always been news, ever since Prohibition. Yeah, a guy like him would be. Well, you know as much as I do, Dollar, no leads yet. He's still quiet about the whole thing?
2: Just like a mouse who won't open up, except to say he'll take care of it himself.
3: Maybe it'll help matters when he finds out the insurance company's interested.
2: You know something? What? I don't think me, you, the whole force, the insurance company, yeah. anybody else can keep that bird alive unless he helps us.
3: Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the New Britain Mutual Insurance Company, Hartford, Connecticut. The following is an accounting of expenditures during my investigation of the Valentine matter. Expense account continued. Item three, three bucks. One telegram to Roy Vickers in Hartford requesting a copy of the policy contracts between New Britain Mutual and Dan Valentine, plus the name and location of the beneficiary and any other data on the case. After that, I walked over to the police station and looked up Inspector DeBaca.
2: Sit down. Thanks. I don't quite get this, darling. What's your part?
3: Well, the insurance company would like a full report on everything that's happened, that's all.
2: You could give them that on the back of your thumbnail, couldn't you? Not quite, Inspector. Oh, you mean a separate report from what we have? Something like that, yes. Well, it's their dough. They can spend it any way they want to, I guess.
3: If there's any reason for them cancelling the policy on Valentine, they'll do it. The fact that somebody shot at him a couple of times and came near killing him is one thing. The fact that he won't open his mouth about it is another. They're looking for a way out. I didn't say that. They just want to make sure about everything. That's all. An insurance policy is a contract, mutually beneficial to both parties. Both parties have to keep the line of that contract.
2: They don't figure Danny Valentine running run around shooting himself for insurance money,
3: <sighs> Inspector. They don't figure
2: anything. Well, now that you've been official, be unofficial. What's your idea?
3: Well, Valentine's got a legitimate policy with the company. They don't want to see him killed. They tell me to investigate the shooting. Actually, they're telling me to see to it that he stays alive and well.
2: Well, that makes sense.
3: Good luck. If you'll sort of let me tag along on the case, I'd appreciate it.
2: Well, we'll see. Oh, well, What's the matter now? It just occurred to me, Valentine bought a house out in Jefferson Parish three months ago, a couple of days after he was released from a federal pen. He's lived there quiet, minding his own business, keeping his nose out of trouble. Yeah. Well, as long as a man does that, even a man with a background like Valentine's, as long as a man does that, we don't bother him, and he doesn't bother us. Well, so? So what happens? Yesterday, you meet him and have a couple of drinks with him. Hello and goodbye. Boom, boom. He gets shot twice. By somebody, somewhere. You a bad news boy?
3: Now, that's as wild as you can get. We had nothing together except the drinks.
2: You sure? I'm sure. Well, I'm thinking about it just the same. Here. Be back in a minute.
3: The bulky, thick folder Inspector DeBaca shoved across the desk at me was marked Valentine Daniel. It started in 1915 and was fat with yellowed clippings all the way through 1942. It was a pretty good history of Dan Valentine and the age he lived in. He was born in Ireland and had fought in the Irish rebellion. He was regarded as both hero and scoundrel. For his own good, he came to America. Somehow, he started out in the wholesale drug business. And understandably, it was an easy step to making prohibition alcohol. And an even easier step to make prison on an income tax evasion charge. The folder mentioned a wife and a daughter who seemed to have successfully avoided most of the newspaper headlines that had involved Dan Valentine. There was one picture of Mrs. Valentine taken in 1928. That's about as far as I got when DeBacca came back into the room, not alone.
2: Interesting stuff?
3: Very, Inspector, very.
2: Well, here's something more interesting. My men have been covering the neighborhood where the shooting happened yesterday afternoon. This man's a witness. This is Mr. Dollar. He's an insurance investigator. It's Willie Blakely.
1: Oh... How do you do, sir?
2: Hope you can help us, Willie.
1: Well, I can try, hmm? I I really didn't see too much. See, I was on my milk truck, and I saw this fellow, this this big fellow, walking down the street. uh, What's his name?
3: Dan Valentine.
1: Yes, sir. Well, he was just walking, like for an early morning walk, and then I saw this car come around the corner, and there were a couple of men in it.
2: What kind of car?
1: I think it was a Buick Sedan. I'm not sure. It was a black car. You
2: happen to get the license number? No. All right, go on.
1: Well, sir, this Mr. Valentine, he looked up when he saw it coming, and he stopped. You know, kind of funny?
2: No, I don't know. Tell me.
1: You know, like he was surprised. Do you think he was surprised at who was in the car? Yes, sir, that's it. He, he sort of smiled. Not a hello kind of a smile. Hmm? Sort of a sad smile. Didn't wave, just stood there. I couldn't see the men in the car by then, so I don't know how they were looking at him. Did you see them as they rounded the corner? Yeah, just a couple of fellas, dark coats and hats. Would you know them if you saw them again? Uh, <laughs> I don't think so, Captain. Okay, two men. Yes, sir. So this, this Mr. Valentine stopped and, and looked at him and, and given this kind of smile. He recognized him, you think? Oh, yeah. And then I heard a noise, you know, something like whack, whack. And Mr. Valentine fell down, and a car drove off.
3: Did Valentine go for a gun? No, sir. What did you do then?
1: Well, I got out of there. Why? I didn't know what was happening. I didn't want to get hurt. You didn't even try to help him? No, sir. I was scared. I didn't know what that whack-whack was, sir.
2: And it took you all this time to tell us about it.
1: I'm sorry, Captain.
2: <sighs> Darling. Yeah? You got something to worry about. Hmm? That noise he was talking about... Didn't sound like regular gunshots, or he would have said so. Silencer. What else?
3: Inspector Debanka continued to question the witness, trying to ascertain more details about the shooting, the car, and the men inside the car. Four hours later, when I left, he was still at it. Some more expenses. Item four, two dollars and a half, cab fare from police station to hospital. I thought I'd drop in and take a chance on Dan Valentine coming
1: across with some information. Sorry, no visitors. It's pretty important. I'm a friend of his. I'm sorry. When can I see him? That's hard to say. Mr. Valentine's condition is not too good. What? Well, nothing to be alarmed about. He lost so much blood that he's in a weakened condition. The doctor's ordered a transfusion. Oh. You can phone in later if you like. Excuse me. Yes, ma'am?
5: I should like to see Mr. Valentine, please.
1: I'm sorry. I was just telling this gentleman. That's impossible. (sighs) How is he? He needs rest. The doctor feels he'd be better off without visitors at the moment.
5: Thank you.
3: I had a feeling about the gray-haired, well-dressed woman... and I hurried after her down the long corridor outside the hospital. I was just in time to see her take a cab that had been waiting at the curb. I managed to hail one myself... and we tagged along Canal Street behind her... until she paid off the driver in front of the Roosevelt Hotel. I was right behind her when she stopped in the lobby and got a key to room 1016... I gave her five minutes, then I knocked on her door. Yes? Hello, Mrs. Valentine. My name's Johnny Dollar. Anne Valentine looked at me for a long time. I had to hand it to her. There were no tears, no frowns or screams. Just a wide, frank look from a woman who, by any man's standards, had once been beautiful.
5: I haven't been called by that name for many years. You're a reporter, of course.
3: No, I'm not. I'm an insurance investigator. In a policeman's office today, I saw one of the few pictures ever taken of you.
5: At this hotel, I'm registered under the name of Anne Ward. Ward
3: is good enough for me, Mrs. Valentine. May I come in?
5: Yes. Now, what is it you want, Mr. Dollar?
3: Possibly the same thing you want to keep your husband alive.
5: I believe that's up to the doctors, isn't it?
3: Not quite. If he was shot at once and he won't help the police find out who did it, there's a reasonable chance he'll be shot at again. Do you know who did it? Well, who it might be. Look, the police have found a witness who describes two men as having done the shooting. Can you add anything to that?
5: Mr. Dollar, I haven't seen Dan in over 13 years. I haven't written to him, talked to him, or contacted him in any way, either while he was in prison or these last few months he's been out. I see. It was his idea. But
3: he must have had a reason. He
5: did. Our daughter. Oh. She believes that Ward was her dead father's name. Do I make myself clear? Yeah. I read about the shooting. I caught the first plane here because I thought I might help Dan. My daughter thinks I'm on a little vacation by myself. You don't believe me, do you?
3: Well, in view of what you've just said about not having written to him for 13 years... That was the
5: way he wanted it. I was never ashamed of Dan, never... He was ashamed of himself and how his activities might affect us. He gave me everything I ever had out of life. In New Salem, that's where we live, and live very well because Dan saw to that part of it before he went to prison. We are considered very proper people, Teresa and myself. Dan sacrificed a great deal for that consideration.
3: I think that you have sacrificed a great deal yourself, Mrs. Valentine.
5: When I go back to the hospital to see him tonight, he'll probably tell me to pack my bag and go home that there's nothing to worry about.
3: But there is something to worry about, isn't there, Mrs. Valentine? He won't talk about it, and you won't talk about it, and both of you know all about it.
5: Oh, Mr. Dollar, you're a very young man. I'm sorry if I sound like I could help you. I can't. Please go.
3: I went back to my hotel and had some dinner. Then after a while, I put in a phone call to the hospital and found out I could talk to Dan Valentine between 7.30 and 9.00. About then, a special delivery came for me. It contained the information I wanted regarding the policy on Dan Valentine. I noticed that the beneficiary was a dual affair, wife and daughter, Anne and Teresa Ward. I had to check with Inspector DeBaca just once more. No luck. He had been unable to identify or locate the two killers described by the witness. He was trying to trace the car. 7.30 on the dot, I was at the hospital. The reception desk seemed reluctant to talk and referred me to the head nurse who happened to be out to dinner, who referred me to the surgical nurse who took me aside and told me to find a crystal ball.
5: Mr. Valentine's gone. We have no idea where.
3: How could he be gone?
5: We started to give him a transfusion. He jumped up suddenly, knocked down one of the male nurses, grabbed his clothes and ran out of the hospital. Just as simple as that. I
3: thought he was in a serious condition.
5: keep your voice down. He was in a serious condition, and it's going to be critical pretty soon running around town, bleeding from two bullet wounds. If you want to keep him alive, Mr. Dollar, you better find him and find him fast.
3: I thought over what Dan Valentine had told me in the hospital earlier about taking care of the matter himself. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized he was going to do just that, even if it killed him.
4: There'll be another intriguing episode in our story of the Valentine matter tomorrow.
3: Tomorrow, what happens to a 30-year-old grudge when somebody explains it with bullets? Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
1: Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, is transcribed
4: in Hollywood. Written by John Dawson. It is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone. Be sure to join us tomorrow night, same time and station, for another exciting episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. Roy Rowan speaking.
0: Welcome back. Well, a good job setting the scene, and I kind of like the way that the episode begins as a bit of a misdirect as to what the case is actually going to be about. The relationship between Johnny and Dan Valentine is interesting, and the approach of respect because Valentine had been such a notable and impactful figure, whatever you thought of him, is unique. And I don't know if it's something we would relate to today, but I can definitely understand it from Johnny and it certainly gives insight as to his character. And I think that Dan Valentine is very well portrayed here. And they just do a great job of making him a Fully fleshed out character. Barney Phillips does a good job as Debaca. Suspicion of Johnny is not particularly reasonable, but it's far from the most unreasonable suspicion we've heard from a policeman on this program. Well, now we turn to listener comments and feedback, and we start out with Rabbit Dude, who writes, Okay, so three serials in, this is my take bob bailey sounds more human the writing for these five-part series are pretty good and elaborate still not a big fan of the theme music and johnny signing a telegram to two guys love johnny doesn't sound right i think the premise of the show is just too good you and bob won me over adam well glad to be of assistance thank you so much and then we have an email from Caleb who writes, Adam, good morning. Hope you and your family are doing well. I really enjoyed the twist of the Chesapeake fraud matter. Unoriginal opinion, but Bob Bailey is such a great Johnny Dollar. And while I've enjoyed the other actors, the serials and Bailey's acting are so much fun. The only part I don't like is having to wait three days between parts one and two, and three through five. I can only imagine how disappointing it would have been when these originally aired to miss a part. It was nagging at me, but when Johnny went to confront the murderer... I knew the story felt familiar. Thank you for telling us that it was an expansion of a prior non serialized episode or I would have gone crazy trying to remember why it sounded so familiar. I still completely forgot the identity of the murderer though until Johnny realized the source of the fingerprints. Speaking of familiar, I noticed some of the transition music is identical to music used in Tales of the Texas Rangers. Not sure how common it was for short musical bits to be recycled, but since I do also listen to Tales of the Texas Rangers religiously, I definitely recognized it. As always, keep up the great work, and thank you again for all you do. Well, thanks for the comments, Caleb. It's definitely a bit of a challenge waiting for the serial episodes to come out, but I think it's also a little bit of the fun. You know, you kind of think about it, and it builds anticipation. Now, we have done omnibus versions of the first six serials. And I anticipate that once we finish the serials, we're going to probably do a few more of the omnibuses so you can kind of sit down and listen to it all at once. Now, we will have a special occasion uh, coming up later on in the year where we will actually do the two parts of the serials on back-to-back days. More on that later on. Now, I should say that uh, we do have four serials that have an episode missing. Thankfully, none of them are missing part five, and the good news is also that thanks to Mr. John Abbott and his fantastic book, The Who Is uh, Johnny Dollar Matter, we do have plot summaries for those missing episodes. We'll get to experience a little bit of that frustration. As to the music reuse, I've mainly talked about it in regards to NBC, but it Uh, became kind of an all-around thing to try to find ways to reduce the cost of producing radio dramas as the potential profit fell throughout the fifties and a lot of that meant resorting to music libraries for your incidental music. And, of course, the way that a library would work is that you would have records containing various musical bits that you could insert into your productions, particularly if they were transcribed or recorded in advance. And so radio went through this transition where you'd often have a choice between orchestral score and organ music. And it was as much a stylistic choice as it was a financial choice. And programs often had a lot of original music, even early sitcoms. The Mel Blanc Show, for example, was a sitcom, but it would have two or three musical numbers inserted in each episode. In many ways, that felt kind of like a nod to theater plays, you know, particularly the old-style theaters, which would provide a lot of entertainment for your buck but music became more expensive and certainly on detective programs really saw a much greater reliance on library music as time went on thanks for the comment caleb mark writes adam there was some pretty obvious fakery going on here johnny calls him bowers and he says yes i'm bower a little later johnny calls him bower and he says bowers This went on and off uh, throughout the show until he was dead. Oi, Well, thanks so much for the comment, Mark. And I think I felt something was a bit off, but I wondered if I was just being a bit nitpicky. But it's a fair call-out with the Bower Bowers thing. It's a tricky last name because it can be Bower Bowers, and it's, you know, it's not like... Bowers is the possessive of Bowers only, but can be a separate last name. And this may be a case of a script editing error and just the sort of pressure of the early Donnie Dollar serials. And we have a comment here from Frank, this one a message to Facebook. Uh, he writes, hi Adam, I really appreciate all you do. But the Chesapeake story on Johnny Dollar really bothered me. I first heard the show with my college roommate about the arsonist who burned down his own factory by recording a tape and having his wife play it over the phone for an alibi. Ever since, I thought Johnny Dollar was great, but the Chesapeake story really bothered me. His persistence resulted in the murder of his friend, as well as the man who was supposedly killed in a boating accident. This happened after the man uh, Johnny was working for called him off the case. Not a good Johnny Dollar, in uh, my opinion. Yours truly, Frank. Well, thanks so much, Frank. And I think I know which episode you're referring to as the first one you heard. That sounds like a uh, Mandel Kramer episode. Certainly, anyone is free to have their own opinion on any episode or series, but I I disagree with your view on the Chesapeake broad matter. Well, I think that what you're saying is technically correct. If Johnny had just withdrawn from the case and closed it when his company was satisfied then it's likely that Bauer or Bowers, whatever his real fake name was, would have survived, as would have Johnny Sprint. But Johnny is an independent investigator. He was hired because of his experience investigating and his overall judgment. And he had a sense that something was wrong. Absolutely, he should have pushed back when a guy who was thousands of miles away hadn't questioned the suspected insured and didn't have that same experience said to close the case. Now, the insurance company could have insisted on closing it, but they brought Johnny on the case for a reason, and so Johnny continued on, and he was right. He did his job. He did what he was supposed to do. And at the end of it, two people ended up dead. And in that way, I don't think it's a failing with the story. The story is reflecting a reality that you can do the right thing, but others can respond by doing something that is very wrong. You can do something right and someone can respond by doing harm to themselves or to others or even coming after your own family. These are the sort of things that we just deal with in real life. And so I think the Chesapeake fraud matter was just reflecting that reality. So it was a bit of a downbeat ending, but was not a bad story at all. But thank you so much. I appreciate the comment. Now it's time to thank our Patreon supporter of the day, and I want to go ahead and thank Blaine. Blaine's been one of our Patreon supporters since January 2017, currently supporting the program at the rookie level of $2 or more per month. Thanks so much for your support, Blaine. And that will do it for today. If you want to be sure to never miss an episode of the podcast, I encourage you to follow it using your favorite podcast software. And if you are enjoying this podcast on YouTube, be sure to like this video, subscribe to the channel, and mark the notification bell. And if you have a comment on the uh, story, please feel free to leave it. The Valentine matter continues on Friday. Uh, join us back here tomorrow for Dangerous Assignment, where...
1: What wild and woolly spot are you sending me to this time?
4: Richmond, Virginia. Why? You heard me, sir. Oh, Richmond, Virginia. great. That's
1: what I get for trying to be a mastermind. Okay, so I unpacked... I wouldn't do that just yet, Steve.
4: You start in Richmond. Where you end up is anybody's guess. What's the deal? Eckman's in this country.
1: Eckman? Hasn't anybody done the world a favor by knocking him off yet?
4: Steve, you know as much about Ekman as I do. He's part-time foreign agent, part-time international information peddler. He's smooth and tough, and he's been in our hair for longer than I care to remember. What's he doing in the United States? Can you think of any reason why Ekman would steal an old Civil War map? Civil War map? Are you kidding? We know Ekman went to Virginia. We also know he managed to crash a fancy dress ball given by a Colonel Carruthers there. After the ball... This map was missing from the wall of the Colonel's study. But I
1: still don't see how a Civil War map could be important enough Neither to... Neither
4: do I. That's why you're going to Richmond. Now, Steve, get down there, talk to Colonel Carruthers, then go anywhere and do anything you have to to get to the bottom of this whole deal.
0: I hope you'll be with us then. In the meantime, do send your comments to Box13 at GreatDetectives.net, follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives, and check us out on Instagram, Instagram.com slash